Welcome to the Hey Human podcast. Hello and welcome to the Hey Human podcast, behavior changing ideas. I'm Neil Davidson and our guest on this episode is Emily Brooke MBE. Emily is founder and chair of Beryl, the company originally focused on getting more people in cities on bikes and now finding additional ways to change how cities move, as we'll hear. Emily is also a partner Revent, which provides venture capital for purpose-led founders focused on change in the areas of climate, healthcare, education, and finance. Emily's first success was what was originally called the Blaze Laser Light, the innovative cycle light. Most Londoners, at the very least, will be familiar with them as they're fitted on the Santander bikes we see used across London daily. The next phase in Beryl's journey is helping make cities car-free through other means, including e-scooters and e-bikes. So we've got plenty of good stuff to talk to Emily about, particularly with a focus on behaviour change. So welcome, Emily. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. So hopefully we can go on a bit of a journey in your career so far, (laughs) uh, because it all seems a bit of a gift for uh, what we talk about in terms of behavior change, particularly positive behavior change. So going back, back a while, Emily, the origins of the laser light and then the developed focus uh, of Beryl in recent times. When you went back to the laser light, which I think you came up with in university, what was the behavior you were trying to change and how did you get so focused on that? Yeah, this is back in 2010. I'd never actually been on a bike as an adult or a proper (laughs) bike. Um, I was one of those people at university who didn't have one and thought people that did were, you know, never really understood (laughs) it. Yeah. Um, And then the summer before my final year, I decided to I lost somebody actually very dear to me um, in Afghanistan and his sister and I decided to cycle the length of the UK for charity in his name right. and literally learn to ride bicycles to do that. I remember le- learning to reach for the water bottle without falling off, which I didn't do completely successfully, but fell in love with cycling. I spent the whole summer on a bike uh, out in the countryside and, and yeah, I became obsessed with it. And I returned to university the week after that ride finished and wanted to dedicate yeah. my final year of product design to something about cycling. And I, I just became obsessed that I wanted to tackle the biggest problem for urban cyclists. And city cyclists, because the countryside was, was lovely and relaxing and peaceful and, and lovely, but the yeah. cities were pretty damn right scary and, and stressful. So then it, it was an obsession with this finding the biggest problem. And it, it could be getting wet or your bike nicked or mm-hmm. whatever it would be. But very quickly, speaking to cyclists and doing any, any of the research, personal safety came out as easily by far the, the number one problem the biggest barrier for people who do cycle in the city the biggest worry um, and the biggest barrier for people who don't yet cycle in the city so how to how to tackle personal safety and that was kind of set me off on a year-long yeah. research project and deep dive into the road safety of cyclists so your kind of view of research what did you see as the sort of biggest barriers to i suppose the the bigger behavior as you mentioned you know getting people on bikes what were the barriers to that it's, it's perceived safety. It's your, your, your you know, there was, it was this, around the same time and there was a spate of, of terrible uh, fatalities of cyclists in London, um, which was which is really, really shocking. Um, and people were nervous to get on their bikes, you know, arguably quite rightly. Um, and I understood the, the threat the wrong way. My first idea, I jumped to a solution and I thought, great, I'm going to do brake lights for bikes. All bikes need brake lights, like cars have them. And I ran into my course leader's room on the first day of term and said, Mr. Morris, I'm doing brake lights for bikes. Isn't it great? And he kind of said, no, I don't don't think, I don't think it is. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you're actually solving a problem. Go away, do the research and come back to me with the problem first before you come running in here with a solution. Probably one of the most useful lessons I ever learned. And I went away genuinely determined to prove him wrong and convinced I was right and very quickly realized I was wrong. I mean, very few bikes actually get hit from behind. It's a single, single percentage, very small percentage. And actually the threat's in front of you. I discovered in, in all of the deep diving into the research, and I did like a lot of you know, cycling around with a GoPro in mm-hmm. my helmet like a Wally and understanding the data and statistics of road safety accidents and working with a driving psychologist analyst who analyzed accidents, which is pretty depressing. But in all of that, I discovered that 79% of bikes that are involved in an accident are actually going straight ahead and somebody else turns into them. Right. And the two most common ones of that is the blind spot, a vehicle just in front of you turns across your path. Mm-hmm. And the second one, a vehicle in front of you pulls out of a junction into your path. So that was the kind of realization that the threat's actually something ahead of you that you can often see, but they just can't see you. So obsessing about that problem, cycling around, thinking about it every day, suddenly came up with a eureka moment of, ah, oh, I can project myself there, a virtual me traveling through traffic to give them a heads up and a warning that I'm coming. And how did that idea, I sometimes think it's hard to even get back. Sometimes it's easy to remember, sometimes it's really hard. How did you have that kind of moment of, you said Eureka? I can remember I was in Brighton cycling towards the seafront and there was a white van just in front of me and it's kind of fairly dark, sunsetty time. And I suddenly thought, if he turns left, he can't see me. And this is the exact problem I was kind of knew was the biggest problem um, and threat to cyclists. And I kind of found myself wishing I had a virtual me just kind of, you know, 10 feet in front of me just to give my heads up that I was there. And the original idea was actually a hologram, like a literal 3D yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, technology yeah. isn't quite there yet for, for 3D me. So the next idea was, well, I could, I could project myself on the road. If it was a, you know, a big projection ahead of me on the road, he could see that out of his window. Um, and that was the kind of literally a, a light bulb or I guess a... <laughs> a laser beam bulb well, well, one of the one of the many many effects that white van man can have on the world. <laughs> <laughs> positive effects obviously positive. okay so I, I quite like the idea of you being uh, a near-death cycling experience and having a eureka moment at the same time. <laughs> that, that that's a first that is silver a linings Neil. Silver linings. <laughs> it's always a silver lining um so i mean i suppose one of the things is you know Many of us, all of us have great ideas. Many of them make it, many of them don't. But I think, you know, probably the truth is the hardest thing is getting from idea to reality, particularly, you know, with new products. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I think Dragon's Den has got a lot to answer for. But, (laughs) um, you know, how was it for you in terms of that hard bit of getting laser light from that idea to reality? I mean, a, a pr- pretty steep learning curve from, from a student who's never had a job before to, to actually manufacturing a product in, in China. I think what got me through is kind of dogged determination and naive optimism, um, but also five trips to China in that first year, um, working with an experienced designer, lots of prototypes, lots of... It was... Yeah, I, th- I think I didn't, I didn't know quite what I was biting off until I jumped yeah. straight in. Um, and it's... Any entrepreneurial venture is incredibly difficult but hardware is also especially difficult because the development cycles are so long you can't iterate as quickly as you can with software and it requires being being in the coalface being out there where things are being Mm. manufactured um, and solving problems in real time but it's an amazing learning curve and and endless problems to solve and challenges to overcome but um we stuck it up on kickstarter 
when Kickstarter first came to the UK, actually, mm. it was the very, the, that first month when the UK didn't really know what Kickstarter was. It was kind yeah. of quite an American concept. You know, my mum was like, sure, so I'm going to give you money now for a product that you may or may not deliver in many, many months' time. Why? <laughs> like, Let's call Kickstarter, yay. Um, but that kind Great. of committed us to, to deliver it. So, um, yeah, we just had to figure it out and get on with it. So any any sort of a tip, anyone sitting, you know, at the stage you were trying to get from, you know, idea to reality, anything apart um, from being naively optimistic? <laughs> I mean, learning. So the, the great... The most amazing thing about being an entrepreneur is you're incredibly fortunate because you're in a position where you have to learn so much, whether there's always endless problems, endless challenges, everything's different every day, whether it's manufacturing or marketing or growing a team or fundraising or whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, learning is you've got to just be a sponge and, for, and there's plenty of people who've done it before you, have been through a similar path mm-hmm. um, and just go and find them and ask them questions. People are incredibly generous with their time. Um, and yeah, just try and absorb as much information as you possibly can from any source. And then it's your job to basically distill that down to something useful. Um, but, but yeah, lean on people who've, who've, who've been through a, a similar journey, um, and, yeah. and yeah, get on with it. There's no experience that's, that's relevant. You need to, need to build that experience yourself. Yeah, I think, but I think you've touched on a really good point there. Uh, hopefully you'll agree, but is, you know, there's lots of, people with experience you know the whole thing about non-exec directors etc or you know adventors and all that but i think you said it you know try and find someone who's been on a similar journey rather than just a journey you know because there's a there's a massive difference yeah and and obviously everyone's experiences are different so take it with a pinch of salt and you have to distill down what is actually going to be right for your your journey and your business um but yeah there's People are very generous with their time and, and, and you can go and ask for advice and, and you know learn as much as you can. Brilliant. So fast forward 10 years, lots of good stuff has obviously happened uh, for Beryl since. Small uh, global pandemic meantime. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the, the reason I mentioned that is I think that's been a really interesting dynamic in a time of, you know, kind of ongoing change in terms of transport and cities, mm. etc. I think there's been lots of positive things. Like it seems like lots of people, you know, my my kind of experience, lots of people on bikes in London, for example. But also not it's kind of good and bad in terms of the global situation, in terms of cities and transports, particularly uh, because of the pandemic. Any any sort of insights on how it's changed, good and bad? <laughs> Lots of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, t- today, Beryl, we, we, you know, we, we, the laser light was our first product, and today we, we operate um, our own bike share schemes and micro mobility schemes. We've got bikes, e bikes, e scooters in eight cities across the country. Um, and yeah, when the, when the pandemic hit, it was a really scary, hairy time because the world stopped still um, and you know, people weren't getting out and about and on the bikes. And um, we didn't know we were in the middle of a fundraiser. It kind of was really kind of didn't know what was going to happen. Actually, quite quickly, we sort of saw people were coming out when they were allowed out, um, getting on independent, safe forms of transport. So the, the bikes were, you know, we had record-breaking months in kind of April, May of, um, of last year. Um, and that has kind of continued through where people are turning to, to bikes and e-bikes and e-scooters for a safe, independent um, form of transport during the pandemic. And it's fascinating because our, you know, so much, our cities are designed for cars, cars, take up, you know, 68% of all the trips nationally could mm-hmm. be are under five miles. So they can be done by bike. And over 50% of the car journeys in London could be cycled in less than 10 minutes. 
And the car carries on average 1.6 people and accounts for a third of the journeys, but yet takes up 80% of the space. Like our cities are carved up with these kind of streams of concrete through them for the car, which is the way historically we used to all get about. But it's one of the most inefficient forms of transport um, that there is. And it it seems like a huge mammoth task to, to change that. Like how do we redesign our cities and claim back that space for active transport, for walking, for cycling? But it actually, it's, it's not as difficult as you think to change that behavior. You look at May last year, 2020, where the world stopped still for a second and people came back out into the roads and they, they walked and they cycled and kids were playing on the street outside our house and on the, what used to be a quite a busy road. Like yeah. People took back that concrete and it's, you know, it's, it, okay, that did take a global pandemic, but the infrastructure it kind of interventions and putting in in a lot, lots of cities, kind of temporary bright bike lanes in 650 kilometers in Paris and you know, over 100 kilometers in New York um, and made space for cycling. And, and the numbers just skyrocketed where people kind of got on their bikes and enjoyed being out there because there were less cars on the road. It was a completely different, completely different site. But yeah, to your, to your kind of hints at the point of it was good and it's also, you know, things can change in the other direction just as fast. If you look at Wuhan, it had something like, a third of all car trips or journeys were by car before COVID, and now it's two thirds doubled because mm. um, people wanted to get into kind of independent again. Yeah. The car is, is also independent, um, so you just need to be mindful about it and kind of look at think it is possible to change what we think is just so ingrained in our city fabric, um, but it but it needs to be done bravely and it needs to be done you know with with thought for the greater good. Yeah, really interesting. Um, I mean, one of the things, you know, we see in terms of behavior changes is, is almost people really struggle to imagine something or, do you know what I mean, leap into mm. it. So yeah. you, you almost need to show people what it could be like and, you know, small scale, even, th- you know, even think in London when, you know, bridges are closed mm. and people see the high street pedestrianized for three months there suddenly people are going, oh, why why can't we do it more like that? What Absolutely. Are the, what do you think are the kind of, I hate to use that. I, I'm smacking my wrist as I say it. What are the kind of nudges that we can uh, use? I think it's, I mean, these, if you look at, uh, for example, you know, the Netherlands was never a cycling city. It is you know, the yeah. cycling capital of the world today, but it was back, it wasn't long ago, it was back in the 70s. Um, and, and they had a bit of a, a huge shift because they had a, um, well, the oil price kind of rocketed and they had a, a, a spate of, a very sad kind of child fatalities in cars and all sorts of things happening, but it triggered, you know, it's these kind of mm. you know, extraordinary events that trigger a real shift in thinking and a real change. Yeah. And they invested heavily into, into cycling infrastructure um, and enabling and cycling as a, as a way of getting around the town. And I'd argue the city is <laughs> so much better for it, um, but it sometimes does change this, as you said, yeah, these kind of a real stop and rethink and readjust your, your lens in the world. To, to kind of break out of what's been the status quo for so long. Yeah, I, I wish we could be more like Amsterdam. I kind of see Amsterdam of seven foot tall people <laughs> on, on bikes without brakes. Um, <laughs> but uh, it does it does make the whole city seem incredibly different. Just, into, you know, I mean, it gives it a different feel as well, as you yeah. say, you know, without those bits of metal. It does. It's, it's one of the best things. I mean, I'm obviously, I'm pretty cycling. I spent the last... 10 years of my life, 11 years of my life um, dedicated to it. But it really is one of the best things for kind of the fabric of a city for to make it equitable and livable for all. I mean, it's, yeah, the, 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 the single-use car um, in these cities, which are as densely populated as they are today, 
just doesn't work for everybody to have one and everybody to move around in that way. Whereas, whereas we've got the space, space for cycling and walking if we if we think about it properly. Role of government is what I just, you know, is you make me think about particularly, Emily, because I think, you know, there is a lot of positive change uh, going on. But also I, I, I go on the other side. Are, are we in the UK focusing too much effort on, on say, like electric cars versus mm. no cars? Well, that's that's an interesting one. I mean, I to be slightly provocative, but would, would, would tend to agree, agree with ahead. you. Go <laughs> ahead. Um, so electric cars, if, if we're honest, I mean, they don't do an awful lot for the fabric of the city just because they they are, I mean, they don't pollute themselves directly, but they do yeah. add to the congestion, which which does. Um, and again, they're, they're pretty inefficient when it comes to moving the, the size of the populations that we have in our urban environment now. Um, and you, you can't, again, get everybody in, in their own electric car to move around London or other it's heavily densely possible. populated cities. It's just not possible. Um, so, yeah, I and mean, while they, 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 they make the situation we currently have better, um, they definitely don't remove the problems that we have. Where next? So where next with Beryl? Um, what's, what's in the pipeline? Uh, we've got a busy, busy year. We've, we've, um, the UK is an interesting market for micromobility because scooters have been illegal and still are illegal. Yeah. We've allowed cities as part of the COVID trial to do trials of, of shared schemes, but technically they're still illegal. Um, so you've got all these kind of very big scooter companies who've raised hundreds of millions of dollars kind of clamoring to come to the UK, but they can't right now. Um, mm. So we've been, our, our strategy is quite different from theirs. We, we work with cities and we win long-term contracts, kind of five, nine years exclusive and often funded contracts. We just won a big one, which is, which is up in Manchester, which is really exciting, mm-hmm. the whole Greater right. Manchester. So we need to get on and deliver that. We've got quite a lot of, I think, mm-hmm. the first bikes are going out on the streets in, in October, which is tomorrow, pretty much. Um, wow. And then a few other cities in the UK to, to, to focus on, which, um, which are you know, bringing out tenders for, for bikes and e-bikes. Yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of ground to win in the UK in the short term. Um, and then we start looking, looking beyond our shores, which is very exciting. Brilliant. Good. Okay. I mean, we've covered it a little bit, but just any sort of tips for would-be founders and entrepreneurs, particularly those who want to start up something that makes a difference? I think it's the very best time to start something that makes a difference. Um, yeah, as you, as you mentioned in, earlier, like I, I'm also a partner of Revent, which is a, a fund trying to um, invest in startups having a meaningful impact on society or the planet. And it really is an exciting time because we, our fundamental belief is the companies that put their purpose first in today's world are the ones really set up to succeed mm-hmm. and for lots of reasons, because of more conscious consumers, because of the you know, tailwinds of support from government, um, from all these kind of governmental, there's loads of reasons why these companies really are set up to, to thrive because they have a purpose, not just, you know, despite it. Um, yeah. So there's, there's lots of funds who are set up to invest in purpose-led companies uh, that believe that you know, compromising on profit and purpose, um, and I'd, yeah, I'd really encourage anybody to to, to get on with it. Like there's there's no experience that's relevant to be an entrepreneur. Uh, a mm. Testament. I just dropped out of university and, and got on with it. Um, so just if you have an idea and you think it's got it's a it has a positive impact in the world, go for it. Like it's genuinely the very best time there's ever been to to to, to do that. And you know, talent, the, the very smart. People want to go and tackle meaningful problems today. Um, so some of the best talents in the world will come and want to help you do that. So, yeah, please get on board. And once you, once you, once you have, let me know, because we would love to hear about it. This is Hey Human. Come see us. HeyHuman.com. 
this one's especially for you, Emily. I'm going to take you to a place where there are no traffic problems, oh. uh, a desert island. Uh, (laughs) okay so we do a little bit of desert island but of course going into the world of marketing so in terms of you know we're coming out of it we hope fingers crossed although different in different parts of the globe but looking back you know um is there an ad that you saw through lockdown that you thought you know that really sort of captured the moment the very very obvious one i'm sorry if it's going to be said by by everybody um and the the nhs or the nhs marketing or the nhs campaign it was just, mm-hmm. it just, it was extraordinary. Like it was the kind of the, the love for the NHS that generated quite rightly, but it was also everywhere. Like kind of what could be done if you really have, I, I don't know what they, what it cost or how they managed to do it or because it was seemed to be everywhere you looked, but it was really that to me kind of summed up the first, certainly the first lockdown um, of just seeing the NHS in, in everywhere you looked, but with such kind of a positive light and appreciation was, was extraordinary. Yeah, no, true. And the good news is nobody's brought that one up yet. Unbelievably, unbelievably. So So you're good there. Uh, And then, you know, the the dark side. Has there been a worse lockdown ad for you? I can't. I'm not really good at that. I can't think of anything. (laughs) Far too positive. (laughs) That that might be a trade in entrepreneur. I need to be endlessly positive and optimistic. Uh, yeah, I struggle with that one. Yeah. Okay, I think I think most people kind of feel generally the the, the Corona uh, wallpaper is the kind of, <laughs> you know you know we we're there for you. We understand what it's like. Well, you uh, probably don't. Yeah, uh, no, anybody's trying to use it for for, for yeah for the quite thinly veiled obvious commercial fake, things. Fake, fake empathy, I think. Is yeah, the, uh, the watch out. Good. Let's get back in the positive zone. Just to finish off, you know, it's been a tough time for everybody. There's no doubt. But, you know, as we've kind of touched on, there's been lots of, you know, positive things like the NHS, as you talked about. There's been lots of triggers for change, uh, as we talked about. What's been the sort of most positive moment uh, during this whole sort of pandemic for you personally? For me personally? Yeah. Um, for the world, the transport impacts that we talked about earlier. For me personally, well, I fell in love. I fell in love at the start of lockdown with somebody who's, as equally independent as I am and run at 100 miles an hour through London without a time to kind of really kind of settle into a relationship or somebody and the world stopped still and we suddenly found that we had to spend all of our time together. Um, I moved in like after weeks of knowing him, the beginning of lockdown and we suddenly kind of found ourselves with nothing to do but just to hang out, which is incredible. Um, thinking it would be a week or two and then mm. here I am a year and a half later, I've never moved out and we just got engaged. So that was a, a a pretty amazing silver lining to a global pandemic. Well, that is a fantastic way to end. So thank you ever so much for that, Emily. It's been a brilliant interview and I think lots of uh, thought-provoking things and lots of luck in the future. Lovely to chat to you today, Neil. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. So again, many thanks to Emily Brook, MBE. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do make sure you subscribe from your preferred provider. And that means you'll get each new episode automatically. And of course, do make sure to leave a good review too. And until the next episode, thanks very much and goodbye. The Hey Human Podcast. Behaviour changing ideas.